Welcome to the Keeping Kids Safe podcast. My name is Karen Cohn. I am the co-founder of the Zach Foundation for Children's Safety. This is your number one resource for all things related to your child's emotional, physical, and social well-being. Now I'd like to introduce my co-host and my friend, the executive director of the Zach Foundation for Children's Safety, Megan Ferraro. Hi, Megan. Hi, Karen. Good morning. How are you? Hi, good morning. I'm well. How are you? I'm good. I'm so excited to share with our listeners today a longtime collaborator and good friend of ours, Alan Korn. Alan is the executive director of the Abbey's Hope Charitable Foundation, where he assists the organization in its management, public policy, marketing, and PR efforts. Um, before joining Abbey's Hope, he was the executive director and general counsel for Safe Kids USA. And he has a ton of experience in advocacy and child safety, and we can't wait to share with you a little bit more about Alan and his work, not only in drowning prevention, but in other areas of child safety as well. Welcome, Alan. Good morning or good afternoon, depending on when you're listening to the podcast. Uh, it's good <laughs> to see you right. both. It's good to see you both. Welcome, Alan. And I also just want to say Alan is a, a good friend of ours, and it's a he has a small it's a small world because even in our work here alan goes way back where he and brian went to college together and knew each other there they weren't the exact same year i think alan you were just a year or two older than brian yeah i i, I was a senior when he was a freshman so our oh, paths okay. crossed and, and and Karen, we were in the same fraternity, which that's right, and the same us. fraternity. Yep. Yes. Of, we're brothers, if you buy into that Greek stuff. Uh, yes, you are. Yeah. And you have many of the same friends from your fraternity. Sure, and still uh, we get a chance to see when I can get Brian away from his busy life to some reunions and golf tournaments. So we get a chance to see each other. Of course, communicate through the work that we do, but. Um, Besides that, just try to stay connected with some old friends. I, I don't have the energy to make new friends, so I like to keep my old friends close. And uh, Brian and you are certainly in that in that uh, stable of friendship. So, yes, well, we're happy to be there, and we're also so we feel so fortunate to have to be working with you in this space, also. Um, I think we got, well, we got reconnected. I don't know if it was before, I don't think it was before then, but not until Zachary passed away and you had had this close relationship with Nancy Baker and as you were working on VGB and then obviously I met her shortly after Zach died and then we were all reconnected. It's yeah. It's an unfortunate example of reconnecting and coincidence. Um, I had spent most of my professional life, as Meg referred to, working in child safety, both legal and lobbying, programmatic PR, and ended up with an expertise as it relates to water safety and entrapment. And lo and behold, we all know Zach's story and your and Brian's story, which we all know uh, all too well. And uh, like I said, an unfortunate accident when we, uh, or coincidence, when I found out that, oh my God, this happened to a 
a friend, a fraternity brother of mine, and that got us reconnected. And uh, we've done a lot of good work since then, so. Yes, and you're such a great child advocate. And so we'd love to talk more about your story. Uh, I don't know if you want to start out by telling us a little bit about your career as a lawyer and then how you got into Safe Kids. And we'd love to share with our listeners. Sure. Well, I, I graduated from law school and took a job like many graduates, not all graduates from law school, uh, at a you know a fairly large firm in St. Louis, Missouri, and practiced law there as an associate for five or six years. And during that time, uh, I was long distance dating. I hope this is a okay topic for you know the kids uh, keeping kids safe but uh with my wife now uh claudia and uh of course we were in love and we had to make a decision about where to to be and i moved to washington dc frankly because the market there for an attorney is better than in st louis and that was 30 years ago and never regretted the, the decision still married still in love or some form of it, and uh, still working in the legal profession, but in a different way. When I came up here, uh, I did a lot of work for hospitals, uh, legal work for hospitals, uh, lobbying work for hospitals in St. Louis. And uh, when I came up here, that was, you know, Washington D is filled with some of the best hospitals in the country including one of, if not the best, but one of the best children's hospitals in, 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 the, in the world, but certainly in the United States, Children's National Medical Center here in Washington, D.C. And they had a program there that uh, did, needed legal work and lobbying work and programmatic work as it relates to child safety. Didn't have much experience with it, but they liked my background. And I pulled the trigger on that job offer and I stayed with them for boy, close, maybe just over 20 years and loved every, every single, single minute of it. And Alan, when did you have your son in this period of time? Was it before you moved to DC, after? At the exact same time. Uh, uh, I started with the Children's Hospital here and their program called Safe Kids, Meg, you mentioned it, uh, in 19... 90, uh, 1994, and my uh, exact same time, and six years later, not exact same time, my son was born. So uh, during that 20-year period, I was a young, uh, a young father through much of that time, learning about safety, unintentional injury, accident profession, accident prevention as a professional. At the same time that I was a young father, uh, right up through teenage years. Uh, uh, and it, it, it motivated me to be a better father as it relates to all the topics that you talk about on your podcast and have crafted an expertise in many, many of the topics. I know it's, it's interesting. I was thinking about, I think about this often, actually. I met Karen and Brian and you shortly after, actually, when I was pregnant with my first 12 years, I think exactly 12 years ago, I think it was exactly this time 
in 2010 that I was introduced to during entrapment and VGB. And really that was my entry into child safety. I had babysat all through high school and college. So I loved kids and I, of course, was always focused on keeping them safe, but never thought about it through the policy angle or really about how it would affect me becoming a parent. So it was a really interesting time for me to enter into this space. And it certainly has shaped the parent that I am today. I don't know if that's for better or for worse, but. <laughs> it, 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 for me, it did it on, on both sides of the coin. It, it, it made me aware of some of those hidden risks, many of which you've talked about on your podcast. I'm a regular listener, uh, you know, crib safety and poison prevention and, uh, you know, bike helmets and all the things that we talk about. But in the same respect, it also made me a better advocate on behalf of children. And I'll tell you one example of it. When Ben was an infant, uh, we used to bathe him in the bathtub. In fact, you guys had a podcast, I believe, on water safety and, and bath time safety. And at the same time I was doing that, there was a movement afoot to ban uh, uh, the seats, the baby bath time seats, because there were some drownings associated with that. And I remember using one of those seats when Benjamin was young and thinking that this product existed because a wet, soapy child is a tough uh, thing to control in a bathtub, even with just a yeah. little bit of water in the bathtub. And They're quite slippery. Very slippery, <laughs> and uh, I really did appreciate the benefit. So my, I first thought, boy, some of these numbers are very concerning related to drowning, and I thought I might be supporting as an advocate with the Children's Hospital and Safe Kids, uh, supporting a movement out there to ban baby bath seats. But my own experiences as a father uh, made me realize that you know there are some benefits to this, and instead of banning, maybe there were some changes that could be made uh, to the baby bath seat instead of banning them from the marketplace altogether. I won't go into the details, but that's what it ended up doing, kind of reconfiguring, re-engineering a baby bath seat to make them uh, safer uh, instead of an outright ban. Uh, so both things, like you say, Meg, it makes you a better parent and think think about you know all the things that we should be doing, but also critically uh, in my advocacy experience and lobbying experience to make sure that I'm practical in my positioning when it comes to child safety and that that's a perfect example i still use it to today today obviously as the balance between wrapping your kids in bubble paper to protect them which you don't want to do and the practicalities of life and how safety and the practicalities of life can mesh together to make for a safe environment pretty interesting and i did want to wrap my kids in bubble wrap especially after Zachary passed away. Yeah, that's a, that is a understandable reaction and probably still do today. Um, you know, you know, you don't hear from your children for a few days and you start to worry. I do too. Um, but there are, um, you know, the balance between safety and practicality is an important aspect of my lobbying you could, uh, one of my lobbying philosophies is don't let the pursuit of perfect be the enemy of good. Right. And you can pursue like bike helmets. Well, all people should be wearing bike helmets. I do when I wear my bike. Uh, hopefully you guys do too. But sometimes lobbying or advocating for an adult bicycle helmet law is doesn't sit well with a lot of people. We can get into some of those reasons if you like. 
So you kind of compromise, well, at least 16 and under, or 14 and under, or 12 and under. And my, at the end of the day, I kind of say to myself, is this good for kids? Well, then I'm going to support it. And sometimes you leave on the table for another time the pursuit of the perfect. And that's just that practicality that I apply every single day in my work. So your commentary brings to mind, I'm going to pull you guys right now. Yep. So you guys are both parents and advocates for child safety. I was driving on a windy road, I think on Saturday, on my way to the baseball fields, and there was maybe an eight-year-old boy riding his bicycle up a hill around a curve without a bicycle helmet on. And it wasn't until he was in my rearview mirror that it registered for me that this child had no parent around him. And, and I didn't go back and say anything to him, but I'm wondering what would you two have done in my position? Me first or you first, Karen? You first, you're the guest. First off, there's a there's a law in Pennsylvania that you're required to wear a bicycle helmet law in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. I forget what the number is, but it's around 12 or 14 years old. Sounds like the kid probably by law should have been in a bicycle helmet. Then the question becomes, do you police the marketplace as parents on this? And I say, sometimes I do, and sometimes I don't. It doesn't feel comfortable to me uh, to parent by the side of the road uh, all the time. But there are a few occasions, and this has happened to me twice in my life, a child left unattended in a car, which is extremely dangerous. Mm -hmm. Then you have to police the marketplace and find help and get that parent back at that car. A lot of people do that with pets. So it depends on the situation. Maybe in that one, I would have drove by and shaken my head and not gone back to do the parenting roadside. But there are other cases that I do. Um, and you have, to, you have to be comfortable doing that because it's difficult. Yes. Well, I'm still thinking about it. So obviously I wish I had gone back to say something, but in the moment I was like, so shocked because it was a young child on really a windy road. Yeah, what was the speed limit on that road? Probably 25, so probably okay. low. But he was right. going up a hill, you know, against traffic, which is what he should have been doing, but around a curve. So if a car had been coming around a curve, I don't know that. They would have seen him. him. Yes. Yeah, and that's the other thing, too, because kids don't drive a car so they don't think like a driver and i even tell my kids that like when they're when they're well two of my kids are now driving but one of that but before they were driving like you have to teach them to think like okay well this car could be making a left-hand turn when you're crossing here so you have to be looking in all these directions and so it's yeah it's it's frightening and who knows maybe he didn't you know in terms of like going back honestly i don't know that i would have gone back unless i really thought that something was going to happen to that child so yeah i might have um and i wouldn't be parent i wouldn't go back and scold the parents it would just be more like how can i protect this child like are you okay why are you here you probably shouldn't be on the road over here uh so it wouldn't be to find the parents and call them out, I wouldn't do that. I It was just more like making sure that he didn't get run over and just letting him know like you, there's, there could be a car coming in the op, you know, coming in the other direction. They may not see you around this turn. You know, your inclination is correct 
Karen, or is also representative in actual public policy. Uh, I believe there's about 20 or between 20 and 25 states that have bicycle helmet laws and hundreds and hundreds of municipalities. So much, but not all of the country is covered by a child bicycle helmet law. And mm -hmm. I testified on, on these things you know, probably 20 or 30 times over my career. And mm -hmm. there's never an enforcement mechanism. It actually comes up in the discussion of the law. Police officers are not giving kids tickets for not wearing helmets. They right. are, on the other hand, giving them coupons for ice cream or a free uh, slice of pizza when they see them wearing a bicycle helmet, kind of the carrot approach. Or the right. stick approach is not, here's a fine, it's young man or young lady, there's a law, next time I see you, I expect to see you in a, a bicycle helmet. So even the police officers are a little uncomfortable uh, with the enforcement of this type of thing, but it's important and uh, it starts a pattern for life. Um, you know, my it does, and that's yeah. what you hope with the law. Like when you compromise, in terms of okay, well, we're gonna we're gonna have this law for age fourteen and under, and you hope that they get into the habit of wearing a helmet. That as they get older, they feel unsafe if they don't have it on. I mean, honestly, there was no helmet law when I was growing up to wear a, um, a bike helmet, but now when I ride a bike, I wear a helmet, and oftentimes my teenage son is looking at me shaking my head and I'm like why are you shaking your head I need to have this on it needs to, you know we need and you need to have yours on also by the way uh, Karen back when you and I were growing up helmets didn't even exist there was yeah you know you say there were no laws they hadn't even been invented yet I mean we're closer to, to, to horses no no, no. I'd like to say that I wasn't around then I, <laughs> they were invented when I was born. No. Oh, kidding. you well, you're slightly younger than I'm I. that much younger. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah I, I was back with the Lewis and Clark expedition. You know, they didn't have life jackets back in their canoes. But um, yeah, it, it, it does stand a, a pattern. Think about your own children about when they get into cars. Uh, you know, they buckle up now. Um, Meg, I'm sure your children, those that can, jump in the car. They know they buckle up. That is a pattern for life, for booster seats and seat belts, um, and it's it's demonstrated by the parents. You get I don't even remember putting on a, my seatbelt anymore, but I know I do. Right. So the kids see that, and that's just part of life in the Cone family, the Farrar family, or the Corn family. That you buckle up when you get when you wear a bike helmet, bike helmet. And that whether or not the law exists or not, it's just the right thing to do and becomes custom pattern and practice. Right. right. And that's what we hope will begin happening, you know, in drowning prevention, right? Like with life jacket usage. We hope that what we're doing today will make it so that at least for my kids, maybe even, but certainly for my grandkids, that that everyone will be wearing life jackets and it won't become something that doesn't look cool or is uncomfortable or whatever it might be. Um, it's that type of behavior change we're looking to make as it relates to drowning prevention. You know, Karen, you mentioned before that Brian and I occasionally uh, end up at the same fraternity golf tournament together. And mm -hmm. one of the things that we always do beforehand is take a boat ride on a lake uh, there, Lake mm -hmm. Geneva in Wisconsin. And I always put on my personal flotation device and I'm with my adults. And mm -hmm. over the years, I have seen that more and more people, like it was almost, oh, Alan's doing it, I can, he's the expert, I can do it, I should do it too. And 
you know, it's bouncy, it's a big lake, and it makes it's nerve wracking for me. I, mm -hmm. So I put it on. Now, more often than not, we put on our life jackets before we go out on, on the board, which is interesting because not very many adults do. They should, for their own safety. It's the law, by the way. And second, um, uh, it's good uh, uh, practice to demonstrate good behavior to everybody, other adults and other kids. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting. I saw a list this weekend of the best, the 10 best places to visit in America. It was, I don't know if it was National Geographic or who it was trying to encourage people to travel within the United States. And can either of you guess the best small town city to visit in the United States? The best small town city? Yes, yeah, so the best city with a small town feel. I'm so it has a small town feel? Yes. I have a guess. What is it? Uh, Hershey, Pennsylvania. No. <laughs> no, it was Bloomington, Indiana. And I thought ah. of you guys. Ah. God, how cool it is. I really, actually, I didn't think of you guys. I thought of Bill Ramos, <laughs> yeah. our board member who... <laughs> who is a professor at um, Indiana University, but I should have thought of you and Brian as well. And really just so excited to see that and thought to myself, gee, maybe, maybe we'll go visit Bloomington <laughs> this summer. Wow, there's something to be said for that. I know. You'll have to send me what, you'll have to send me that article or where it was from. Yes, I am actually just pulling it up right now. It was Forbes uh, huh? and I'll share it with you guys. The 22 best places to travel in the US in 2022. And I think okay. it's the very last one is Bloomington. So, okay. <laughs> hey, it's on the list. A must stop on any Midwest road trip and one of the best small towns in the U.S. This Hoosier city should be on your radar for 2022 thanks to its buzzing cuisine and rich culture. So for wow. those who are wondering why we're so interested in this, um, the university that Alan and Brian were um, fraternity members together was Indiana University, right, Alan? Yes, yes, correct. Yes, yeah. In Bloomington, full circle here. <laughs> That's right, full circle. I have heard that there is great food there, and we've been talking about trying to go for years, but still haven't quite made it there yet. <laughs> My wife has not seen the campus, even though yeah, I- Yeah, neither have I. So there's the, there's a nice way for maybe the four of us to get together. Meg, you could do yeah. uh, some kind of reunion in Bloomington. Yeah, and we can, we can have we can have a a little reunion with Bill Ramos. Yeah, we should have like, <laughs> yeah board member board meeting there. That would be fun. That would be fun. So, Alan, where do we leave off on your story? Because I want to make sure we don't yeah, lose that. Sure, sure. And, you know, and then, uh, when I left uh, the hospital after twenty years, I kind of thought that might be it for me. But almost immediately, a lot of the families that I worked for and with uh, while at the doing advocacy work for Safe Kids uh, reached out to me to kind of help them uh, get their foundations running. Believe it or not, what you do and what you and Brian do and what Scott and Katie Taylor do with their foundation, Abby's Hope, is fairly and relatively new. I don't want to overstate that because family, you know, nonprofits and uh, have been around for a long time. But the family foundation concept is fairly, fairly new. And uh, uh, many of the, a few of the families reach out to me to kind of help them do, uh, get their organizations going, to help them with their advocacy, to 
uh, add to their programming, not just personal flotation device giveaways or education about supervision, but maybe if I can be so bold to add a bit of sophistication to their efforts. And when you do that, advocacy and laws, ordinances, regulations, both at the federal and state level, is a way to address safety the same way you would by educating a preschool class to wear personal flotation devices or to wear a bike helmet every time you ride or buckle up every time you get in a car. The advocacy component is an important, and I believe one of the most effective uh, components of uh, protecting kids and protecting kids from unintentional injury. So, um, and, and so I signed up to with many of those families and uh, I continue to do that today and I love it, it's great. It's heartwarming work. When I used to practice law, um, uh, despite working for hospitals, I remember one of the issues was uh, uh, a you know sharing a helicopter between two two hospitals, an important thing, but there had to have some documents to to support that sharing of a, a medevac uh, uh, helicopter. Um, but it's business related. It serves the purpose and the mission. But what I do now is extremely heartwarming. And many of my colleagues uh, to, since uh, then, Alan, how do you do what you do? How did you get out of the traditional practice of law to do something uh, a little bit more heartfelt? And this is it to a T. And I love it. I really do. Um, it's. I put my head on my pillow every night. Uh, from a professional perspective and, and feel good about what I do. And that's why I continue doing it, despite being a little older now. Well, you can yeah. tell it's evident in your work and in you know how much effort you put into what you do and, and to saving lives. So we're really grateful to be working with you and um, looking to hear more, if you can share with us about Mm -hmm. how you started working in drowning prevention specifically. Yeah, well, uh, drowning prevention was an important issue for the Children's Hospital. You guys have talked before about where drowning falls in the public health uh, matrix of injury and death, and it's very high, far too high. And so Safe Kids and the hospital spend a lot of time on drowning prevention issues. But the most critical component was uh, the, the death of Graham Baker, who is Nancy Baker's daughter. And just, you know, for those that are listening, uh, also Secretary of State James Baker, if that name sounds familiar to your listener, listeners, he was the former Secretary of State of the United States, Chief of Staff for Bush one and even Secretary of the Treasury for Bush two. Um, they lost their granddaughter and daughter, Nancy's daughter, respectively, to an entrapment. There you go. I've read that book. Um, it's he, uh, Meg is holding up a recent book about Secretary of State James Baker, for which he talks about the death of his granddaughter and how it tore apart that family's life for a long time and still is a defining issue for them. But Nancy found her way at Safe Kids after asking to her account, many, many organizations to help her with an effort. And apparently, these are her words, not mine, 
myself and the Safe Kids team were the only ones that gave her the time of day. And we listened to her story and I started thinking about what we could do from a public policy perspective. And with the Cones help at the time and the Taylors help at the time and other families and stakeholders, we were able to pass what is referred to as the Virginia Graham Baker Pool and Spa Safety Act, which was a pretty important piece of legislation. And that wasn't a quick journey from what I have learned over the years. I, as I said earlier, I came into this space in 2010, but you had that law passed in 2007, but it had been, how many years had you been actively working to get the bill introduced and then passed? Yeah, it was, a, it was about a three year effort um, to get it done, which a lot of professional lobbyists will tell you is a short amount of time. I felt like it was a long time. I remember when we were this close to getting it passed, I was sitting uh, in a hearing room and there was a lobbyist for a drug company sitting next to me. And he was a pretty sophisticated guy and was following the Virginia Graham Baker Pool and Spa Safety Act. We knew it was going to be well received in the Senate at that time. And he actually whispered to me, how the heck did you get this done so quickly? And my response to him was quickly. It took us three years. But public policy is a slow-moving machine. It is uh, there's it does not happen quickly. And there's all kinds of examples uh, to that. Just pick up any newspaper any single day. There's issues that have been pending for years, sometimes decades. Uh, but this one uh, took three years and a lot of work, and not without its controversy. But we got it done, and we had to compromise. We had to. Uh, put aside the pursuit of perfect to accept mm -hmm. the good. Uh, and uh, it's been 12 years, closer to 15, maybe 14 years now. And it's held up now by many as an example of how government can work. And again, if you read the newspaper these days or any time uh, in the past few years, some would say, you know, government doesn't work. But this is an example where it has. And uh, Karen and Brian uh, uh, deserve some of that credit because uh, they were willing to use, and I use that term specifically, their own son's death for the greater good. And not too many parents do that. The Baker family did that also, as did the Taylor. Not an easy thing to do. So. The legacy and I, re I remember when I first met Nancy, how she was saying that, you know, the bill had been floundering and it really was such a struggle. And unfortunately, it did take other children's deaths to really get it to pass or, yeah. you know, to get uh, additional lawmakers behind it. It was obviously the incident and death uh, of Zachary and the death of Abby Taylor, the namesake of that foundation, uh, Abby's Hope Charitable Foundation. Uh, both those incidences happened in a relatively short period of time. And members of Congress from Connecticut, where uh, the Zach Foundation is located, near family resides, and Minnesota, 
kind of said, hey, what the heck is going on here? How does this happen in this country in this day and age? And sure enough, the Baker family had a vehicle, a legislative vehicle, and it started, momentum really started picking up uh, after the additional incidents. So, um, uh, and listen, I use the term use specifically. Mm. We use the deaths to spread the word about how this happens and that there's more importantly a solution to the problem and the vgb was it and i think if i can just say one other thing although we'll talk a bit more about the legislation i'm sure um since the passage of this piece of legislation at least as of this date there's not been a single death in a public pool and far less in residential pools but not a single death in a public pool in this country by way of entrapment and that is due, dare I say, completely and solely to the efforts surrounded around the Virginia Grand Baker Pool and Spa Safety Act and all the family foundations that have been promoting, promoting it and educating it throughout the past uh, 14, 13, 15, 14 years. Um, so look at that. That's what I mean. It's government can work. Um, well, it demonstrates that laws can change behavior and you know on a positive note you know while it was passed after the, th the you know the deaths of these three children as well as many others mm -hmm. that it did start this conversation uh, uh you know nationally for drowning prevention and water safety that didn't exist before it did it was the catalyst um uh, for the bigger industry for lack of a better way of saying it karen that you and me and meg and others are part of every single day it didn't exist 15 years ago or it was right. a lot of people doing a lot of good work but this collective universal shared effort for water safety in part can be directed and related back to the passage of that important piece of legislation mm-hmm it's incredible the changes that have happened in this space, even in, as I said, the 12 years that I've been working in this space, there's so much more collaboration and goal setting. And, you know, we're building this national water safety action plan that we couldn't have even imagined developing five years ago. And, and we've made so much progress and I can't wait to see how much more progress we'll make in the next 12 years. But excited to talk to you not only about what the VGB did, but what the VGB will do. I think we've been talking a lot about the VGB being up for reauthorization and our partnership with some legislators on the Hill that have been really leading the charge. I think you talk about some of them bleeding chlorinated pool water. And so I thought it might be interesting for our listeners to hear more about what's happening today. Well, um, you know, I am very conscious of who listens uh, uh, to keeping kids safe. I'm expecting, notwithstanding the fact that I'm a listener, uh, that most are uh, probably young parents or new parents. Uh, and the VGB is probably something they have not heard of. But let me, at this point, change the way they, from this point on, look at a pool, whether public or private, a community pool, a summer camp pool, a pool in your own backyard, a neighborhood pool. 
And there's lots to recognize in the VGB, but I'm only gonna talk about one particular component. It's easy to tell whether or not the pool that you're enjoying, and we want people to enjoy pools and spas. By the way, this also applies to spas that you see at hotels and resorts and sometimes in the backyards of people's homes. It's very easy to tell whether or not it is VGB, Virginia Graham Baker, compliant. And if you look at the bottom of the pool, look at the drain. That's the outlet that the water flows for purposes of keeping um, the, the, the water healthy for swimming. If the drain at the bottom of that pool is flat and flush to the bottom of the pool, it is probably not compliant with the VGB. And despite that the VGB only applies to public pools, uh, the physics are no different in public pools as they are in private pools. So you want that safety device in private pools also, and thankfully most do. If it is flat, flush to the bottom of the pool, it is dangerous. If it is convex or rounded and rises above the level of the pool, I like to say, if you can stub your toe on the drain, it is probably VGB compliant. So you can tell by looking down from the side of the pool at the drain, uh, whether or not it's compliant and you should. Um, and if it is not, you can help us do the work that we do by letting a pool owner, a going back to our talk about policing the own, you know, marketplace, but letting the hotel management or the apartment management or the uh, resort management, the summer camp, the residential pool, hey, you need to get this pool compliant with the VGB. They probably won't know what you're talking about, um, but they'll tell their pool service company and they'll make the change. And it is not expensive. This is, you know, a, 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 a drain cover costs 50 or $60 and can be changed out as part of the common maintenance, regular maintenance of a pool. So um, there you have it. That's how to do it. You can all help us do our work. And you know, I'm thinking for about our video, sorry, for our video behind you, you have a safe and an unsafe drain. Yes, that's a part, very good. Hey, good eye. <laughs> I also have a picture of the signing of the Virginia Graham Baker Pool and Spa Safety Act up there. The Baker family. That's harder to see. Yeah, to invite me to that <laughs> signing in the Oval Office, which you have was, a lot of photos. Yeah, and not all of them are that uh, are that. Uh, They're not that clear. Yeah, yeah. But there's some neat ones there. But yes, those two drains are two examples. Those are examples of a dangerous drain and a and a, and a safe drain. Safe drain, which we did in partnership with you all. And those uh, boards, I use them all the time uh, when I do child safety seat talks, or I carry them up to Capitol Hill because no one really knows, despite my description, what does this really look like? Well, there you have it, and uh, it, you get an aha moment with legislators. Uh, to, ah, I get it now. Well, then let's get this done in residential pools also. Something we work on all the time. So uh, good, good spot there, Karen. You know, Alan, I'm thinking about if I was a, a homeowner with a pool in my backyard, um, I would wonder, so first, okay, it looks like my drain cover is safe, but do drain covers erode? I was thinking about 
I look, happen to look at the side of Teddy's car seat and notice, oh, it's up for expiration, right? They expire after seven years. Do drain covers expire? Like, um... Excellent, excellent question. And the answer is yes. Think about the environment of pool. There's UV degradation. There's chemical degradation. There's just normal wear and tear. And normally a drain cover, a safe one even, should be changed out every five years but regularly checked uh, with each pool visit. In fact, there's a law in Minnesota that requires all pools to be, not every five years, but much more regularly to be checked to make sure they're still attached properly, there hasn't been degradation. Another example, Karen, of public policy helping change behavior for the good. And um, so yes, you do want to uh, uh, be aware of that. And, and Meg, your point is a good one. There's a small way for parents or pool management companies or grandparents to get involved here. When the pool service company comes out, even if you don't know a thing about the VGB, other than what you learned by this uh, podcast, it's nice to say it. Listen, can you check my drain cover? Can you make sure it's still attached? properly is it vgb compliant you'll impress your pool service company if you say that and uh they'll do it for you and it's very easy this isn't a big engineering uh nasa like effort it is very easy to become compliant and it's good to empower parents to understand this to have this nomenclature in their head and take charge of their own pools that they take their families to it's great advice yeah you know, we think about that a lot. There's so many things that we talk to parents about around backyard pool safety. And I often say, you know, pool drain covers expire, but it's not a top talking point, but what a great way to make sure that your drain cover is properly affixed, right? That those screws haven't come loose. Simply swapping that out every five to seven years is an easy fix. Yeah, mention, and mention it to your pool service company. One of the things that the VGB did was ban the dangerous drain covers. You cannot find them in the market. So over time, even though the VGB only applies to public pools, over time, as you change out your drain covers through common wear and tear and degradation and so forth, you can't but help to put a safe drain cover because you can't find the dangerous one, at least on the open marketplace, a uh, few exceptions. But um, in the open marketplace, certainly pool service companies know about the VGB. Meg, you and I and Karen uh, go to these industry shows all the time, and the knowledge of the VGB in the industry is very, very good. So they do change it out, and um, uh, it's it's an important component of the, uh, of, of the maintenance to keep your pools, pools safe, along with the fencing and the gates and the safety devices that you guys talk about all the time. And so as we think about what does the VGB look like today, what is the future of, of the Virginia Grand Baker Pool and Spa Safety Act? Yeah, well, I think, here's how I would say that. There is a movement afoot to, you used the word, Meg, reauthorize the Virginia Grand Baker Pool and Spa Safety Act. I will make a lobbyist out of you yet. That is a <laughs> fancy word for just it's time to upgrade. It's time to refresh. It's time to relook at the VGB. And we, two of the three of us and many others, are doing that right now. And 
um, I think we're going to see some action here uh, within the next couple of weeks on that. And I think what that refresh refreshment is going to do, both in the reauthorization and other things that are going to happen, is let's, this is how I characterize it, let's do for traditional forms of drowning what the VGB has done for entrapment. Because the traditional forms of drowning is still a, a number one killer of kids, depending on the age of the child. So we need to have the same effort, the same attention, the same selfless, selflessness of the Cone family and the Taylor family and the Baker family, we're all on board on this, to apply their same energy, resources, their political capital, which all of us are gaining uh, now, to do for traditional forms of drowning what VGB did for entrapment. And I think that's the movement here uh, going forward. And if I can say, gang, that I think keeping kids safe listeners have a role in this. Even a small role can be helpful. You all talk so much on your podcast about the safe behaviors and safe uh, safety devices uh, that make parenting easier and safer for the kids. Ergo the name, keeping kids safe. Another way to keep kids safe is to get involved even in a small way in advocacy. If these issues ring true to you, if they move you, work with the Zach Foundation, work with Abby's Hope, work with the Baker family, the American Red Cross, the YMCA. We all have advocacy efforts to get involved, if anything, just to, if you run across your member of Congress at a an event at a parade to say, hey, don't forget about water safety. There's lots going on in Congress. There's lots going on in the state legislature. Please keep kids in mind. That's it. And there's lots more you can do as you get comfortable with it. So I like to kind of empower people to help become little lobbyists, even in a small way. And you can protect kids in a big way with small incremental efforts. That's a great point. Now, you know, you do so much work in drowning prevention. I know that we're not your only area of focus. Um, I know you're an avid outdoorsman, a camper, a bird watcher. I think there's probably a better term than bird watcher, but um, I wanted to just hear a little bit about what other areas of injury prevention you're involved in. You know, it's funny you say bird watcher. I'm, I, it overstates what I do, but I do identify all the birds. Uh, people that bird watch don't like the term bird watcher. I'm a birder. That's what yes. I'm birding. Birder. birder. I've, yeah. I've, I said bird I've, watcher. I knew it. <laughs> yeah. I'm a, I'm a, um, I'm a, uh, I've made that mistake on a couple of times and been corrected. People who are really into birding are extremely serious about their birding. Uh, and if you say bird watcher, I've even been on a bird hike where I said something to someone and someone shushed me and says, shh, I'm birding with my ears. Okay, all right. Uh, they were listening for birds. They didn't want me talking to someone I was walking with. So um, yeah, I am a, a, a interested in the outdoors and, and uh, have a in particular interest in doing a little bit of work in the camping arena, camp safety. 
Um, I know uh, Karen has sent her kids to summer camps. I've sent my child to summer camps and are big fans of summer camps. Meg, I think in the past, if I remember correctly, you asked me about some recommendations about some summer camps. So it's on your radar screen too. I don't know if you pulled the trigger, but a summer camp is a microcosm of a home. Uh, here you go, you send your kids off to, to a summer camp for eight weeks or four weeks or two weeks into a cabin. And you wanna make sure that uh, despite you want that rustic nature feel, you still need a smoke alarm. You still need a carbon monoxide detector in many cabins. There are issues on the waterfront, many of which we talked today. A lot of camps have riflery ranges, archery ranges. There's food protection, climbing walls. When you start thinking about it, you say to yourself, oh my God, I'll never send my kid to a summer camp. No, 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 no. The benefits of summer camp are fantastic. I, my, my, my experience with it is uh, proof positive of it. Uh, Karen, I, I'll let you chime in whether or not you have found the same thing. I'm sure you have, but you got to think about safety at summer camps too. And you, you, in that case, you just want to look for a camp that's ACA accredited, American Camp Association accredited, which means they've got the protocols in place and regular inspections of those camps uh, to make sure they're safe. And you also want to talk to the camp directors and make sure you feel comfortable with them as well when you're considering that camp for your children. But I am a huge proponent of sleepaway camp. I never had the opportunity to go as a child. And so I felt like it was something that I missed out on as a kid. And my, I, you know, so two of my three kids went, um, my son, it did not resonate with him. He did not enjoy it, but my two girls loved it. Yeah, uh, uh, I am a, uh, I'm brainwashed when it comes to summer camps. And there's lots of opportunities out there. I work for an organization that gives out scholarships uh, for kids that uh, can't afford summer camps, week-long summer camps, uh, two-week-long summer camps, even in some cases, four- and eight-week summer camp experience for which we help underwrite those things. That's how important we think it is. The, the, the example, my, my son was a big... Uh, backpacker and canoeist while at camp. Well, the independence that camping provides to you, you paddle all day, you hike all day, you get into a campsite, you can't sit on your butt. You gotta collect firewood, you gotta start preparing a meal, you gotta put up your shelter, you gotta share the responsibilities of the work uh, of that. And that's all indicia, indicia of leadership and community decision-making along with many, many, many other benefits of day camps also. I don't want to uh, forget about them. Great experiences with day camps about socialization and leadership and independence and selflessness, uh, realizing that the sun does not rise and make a revolution around your kid's head, even though in our hearts they do. But we don't want our children thinking that in summer camp uh, uh, teaches you so many things, one of which that you're part of a team and that you're part of a group that only gets along if you all get along. Um, so uh, thank you uh, for mentioning that about my background and I like to do a lot of work in that area also. Well, it brings me back to the weekend. So for those of you <laughs> that are listening, I was talking with Alan this morning and I asked him how he was. And he said, oh, the weekend went by so fast. I can't believe it's already Monday morning. And 
you know, Alan has one child in college and I have four children at home. And I said, to him, what did I say in response to that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yours was, your weekend was completely different than mine. Uh, <laughs> and you couldn't wait for the weekend to be over because you could put your kid into the car, into the car seat, uh, and uh, drop them off at school. Uh, it gets better and time does, uh, does advance, uh, uh, Meg. Um, so you'll, you'll get there. Yes, of, of course I will. I just, it was so, the dichotomy between our lives and how we felt about Monday morning. I was so happy to see Monday morning in front of me. Yeah. <laughs> Three of my four kids out the door and off to school and hopefully, you know, come home worn out and happy. <laughs> and, you know, there's, there's good and bad phases of all different ages with the kids, that's for sure. Uh, one example of when they're younger is they want to be with you all the time, which is probably part of what makes it hard mm -hmm. because, um, and especially like the physical touch of it too, especially when they're really little, they want to be held a lot. And the, I know when my kids were younger, there were times where I was like, can I please just have someone not touching me for a minute? <laughs> just for one minute. But um, then they get older and they want to be independent and they don't want to be around you and you're not cool. And that that's a little bit harder to take. But um, and then another thing that Alan and I were talking about is how when your child goes off to college, you want to give them their space and you want to let them develop their independence and be on their own and you just kind of have to sit back and provide support when needed, right? I would I would love a reality show entitled The Day in the Life of Benjamin Corn. Uh, <laughs> and just a video of him and I could sit with a bowl of popcorn and watch him all day. That is not realistic. You have to put aside those own personal uh, uh, interest and in, you want to be engaged in almost everything and give them their independence. And I'm, I, I always think about whenever I need to talk to Ben or to, uh, text to Ben, you know, am I doing it too much? And maybe I overthink it too much, but I just want him to have his space and make his own mistakes, make his own friends, be the independence, which he learned at summer camp um, or day camps uh, to implement those life lessons he learned. And uh, it's uh, a dichotomy, as you say, to say the least. Well, Alan, there's so much more we could ask you about, but we don't want to take up too much of your time. We really appreciate having you on today, and we can't wait to have you back again soon, hopefully to talk about new water safety and drowning prevention legislation that we'll all be working toward. Um, so in the meantime, thank you. And actually, I'm going to ask you a question that I ask, although I think I may already know the answer of many of our guests is what is one hobby or activity that you have that you may not have already shared with our listeners? Yeah, uh, um, I've listened to your show before and you asked that question of your pediatrician and your pediatrician said he played the accordion. Am I right? Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, I do not play the accordion, uh, nor you do I. You pass the test, Alan, yeah, on right. being a listener. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah, well, I, 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 I am a listener. I also heard that I've known the debates on on uh, types of cranberry sauce. Uh, 
uh, when you <laughs> said that during the Thanksgiving thing, and I happen to like them both. I don't poo-poo the canned uh, cranberry sauce. But anyway, uh, one, one thing, I mean, <laughs> this may not surprise you given my answer in the camps. I, I think my wife and I, along with my son, we've been to probably 25, maybe close to 30 national parks around the country. Uh, we have spent, I have spent much of my adult life and my wife uh, shares the interest with me. Uh, we've been to almost all of the major ones and many of the minor ones. Um, Yellowstone, Grand Tetons, the Canadian Rockies, the Florida Everglades, the you know, Yosemite, you name it, Voyageur National Park up on the border of Canada. So we love it. We spend our time hiking. Uh, there's nothing that gives me greater pleasure than hiking for several hours with a sandwich in my backpack and having it at a glacial lake or at a, a, a mountain stream. Um, it's almost a religious experience for me. And we've been doing that our whole life. So there you go. That may not surprise you, but might be something new that you know about me. Yes, I'm happy to know it. And it sounds amazing. I'm, I'm inspired to go out and take a hike now. Get your kids out there. Get your kids. The national parks are America's best idea, if I can quote Ken Burns. <laughs> yep. Very good. Well, thank you for being on with us today. And for those of you that are listening, thank you for continuing to listen. And when you ask what can you do to help, you can rate our podcast, you can subscribe to it, share it with your friends and families, and do your best to keep your kids safe this spring.